And we think that the venture capital industry, frankly, could be the poster children for cognitive bias. And one way that shows up is overlooking, systematically overlooking certain types of entrepreneurs. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Strategy Show. I'm Simon Severino, your host. This episode is brought to you by The Strategy Sprints. At Strategy Sprints, we do only one thing, strategy in sprints. Strategy is about your monthly revenue, higher, less volatile, more reliable. And in sprints means doing it in a way that your team has more and more energy for the next sprint that's coming. We go every day and try to find the brightest minds and the most interesting insights about the markets and how to grow your business. Today, we have the co-founder and managing director of Ulu Ventures, a seed stage enterprise IT focused VC firm in Silicon Valley since 10 years. And um, the guest is also a PhD in Stanford on decision under on decision making under uncertain conditions. And welcome, Clint Corver. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so pumped to have you here. Uh, Let's, uh, the, let's, let's tell the audience a little bit about yourself and Ulu Ventures. Sure. So uh, Ulu Ventures, as you mentioned, it's a seed stage enterprise IT focused venture firm here in Silicon Valley. We've been around for a little over 10 years. And uh, we've got, I guess, a couple of things that make us a bit different than the standard venture firm. So one is we've got a very analytic process for making decisions. So we specifically quantify risk and uncertainty, and, and we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. Another thing that makes us a little bit different is we have diversity as one of our investment theses. And by um, investment theses, I mean our theory as to how we generate superior returns. And we think that the venture capital industry, frankly, could be the poster children for cognitive bias. And one way that shows up is overlooking, systematically overlooking certain types of entrepreneurs. And we think we can generate superior returns by specifically looking for those types of entrepreneurs. What I love about you is you have such a strong position on what the stories are that in the VC world are, that's just how we identify as when we invest. And then there is the facts and sometimes the gap is huge. What's one example of a story that really doesn't match the numbers? Well, so there's this, I would say, myth in venture capital that to be a good venture capitalist, you have to have the magic, quote unquote. And in fact, they even have this list called the Midas Touch for those that are the best performing VCs every year. And in fact, when I got into venture about 10 years ago, I went around and asked a number of folks. I didn't start up companies before and I had some VCs invest in me. So I asked them and some folks that I knew from school. I said, well, how do you do it? And after the first level of, oh, you know, big markets, tenacious entrepreneurs, differentiated technologies, like, okay, I got that. That's pretty straightforward. But now I've got 10 companies that all have those characteristics. How do you pick? And literally every single person I talked to said, and by the way, these are people that knew me that were friends of mine, said, you just have to have the magic. And oh, by the way, it's the strangest thing about venture because you have these really talented entrepreneurs, investment bankers, um, you know, executives and so forth that get into venture. And you know, after five or seven years, they're, they find out they're just not investors. I'm like, really? That's the best you got for me. And, you know, and we've known each other for how long? And so I said, well, you know, we've got this kind of, we're thinking of, you know, it's kind of structuring the decision-making a little bit more, you know, quantifying the risks. And I kind of described how we we're thinking about doing it. And they all said, oh, clink, 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 clink. You just don't get it. 
we have some analysts that run around and look at market size numbers every once in a while, but nobody pays any attention to them. That's not the way the industry works. So when we started 10 years ago, it's like, well, we, we're either going to be geniuses or idiots by the time we're done with this, because we're just doing it very differently than everybody else. It's interesting. That's so many smart people, and then they talk about magic. The highest calling right now is to be of service. So the best sales is to not sell at all, but instead to serve the people you care about. Selling is telling. So who do you serve? And how do you serve them? The quality of this experience makes the difference. If you want our experts to go over your current sales funnel and really dive into the experience and the needs of your clients at each conversion point and make it a wow experience, then you are in luck because we have an exercise for you. Our 15-minute sales audit and one-on-one -on -one coaching with a world-class sprint coach. Fill out a couple of questions about your sales funnel and you will have clarity. In your personalized coaching session, you will get clarity on your number one bottleneck, three ideas on how to accelerate your growth, and a tangible sales map on how to double your conversions. Go to strategysprints.com sales and do our 15-minute free sales audit today. All right, so what is it about beating the market or not beating the market? I know that you have a lot of data about that. What's your rationale in risk and de-risking your decisions? Yeah, well, so it starts out, if you just look at the industry, and there's some sources, I mean, it's hard to get good data on venture. But Cambridge Associates tracks the top 100 deals every year in venture, at least in the U.S., that generates all the profit in the industry. This is out of 4,000 venture investments on average each year. So, you know, summarize that two and a half percent of venture deals in the U.S. generate all the profit in the industry. So that's just the game we're playing. Oh, oh by the way, if you're Sequoia, Greylock, Benchmark, and Dreesen, some of the top tier venture folks, um, this comes from Horsley Bridge, which is a fund of funds that has been investing in these folks for the last 40 years. Four and a half percent of their invested capital drives 60 percent of all their returns. So round numbers, they're about twice as good as average. So this is, this is a really scary industry to be in, in the sense it's, it's hard to find another industry where the hit rate is that small. So that's where we start with everything. So, so we think that we're, you know, we're better than the average VC, but for, we're not as, you know, if Sequoia is four and a half percent, that's kind of where we, that's the top of where we have to be. So that's kind of like call it a tops down view of how we think about risk and uncertainty. And then there's the bottoms up view. And there's a field called decision analysis, which is what I have my PhD in. And, uh, and basically, it's a way to quantify expert judgment, assessments around risk and uncertainty. And so we go through a process where we take all those uncertainties. And by the way, I look at venture capital as fundamentally the, the key challenge in venture is understanding the risks. And the better you understand the risks, the better you can make decisions, the better you can help your companies overcome those risks. So at the end of the day, we boil it all down into at the end of what we call a probability weighted multiple uninvested capital. So we use one metric, that probability weighted multiple, to underwrite every time we write a check. Now, but just to give you a sense of comparison, most VCs will say something like, I want a 10x multiple. So if I invest a dollar in your company, I want $10 back at the end of the day. And we say the same thing, but probability weighted. Also, what strikes me is that you have one metric, while usually when we have VCs here and we ask them, what do you check at the beginning and what do you base your decisions uh, on, we have a very long list of metrics. So what are the few metrics that you 
in the due diligence process and in the investment decision making, what are the few KPIs that you really um, go deep in? Yeah, so, so we've got, if you will, two stages of our process. So just again, to give you a sense of, you know, our, by the way, you know, we're a small firm. So we maybe have four people on the investment team here and we have another three people in support. So, you know, pretty small team. We have 3,000 opportunities that hit our radar screen a year. We do about 300 first meetings, about 60 second meetings, and then we roll up our sleeves and do hardcore due diligence about 30 times a year to write 20 checks. So that's our pipeline. And in the first part of the pipeline, you know, we don't have enough time to really do a lot of quantitative analysis. So we have what we call as a rubric. And matter of fact, you can go to our website, uluventures.com, and you can see our rubric. And this is essentially the qualitative factors we look for when we invest in a company. And it's pretty standard stuff. You know, we're looking for a big market opportunity. We're looking for, you know, a team with domain expertise and, you know, some special sauce they're bringing to the table. We're looking for, you know, something we think is fundable, these sorts of things, like not just from us, but, you know, downstream and so forth. So we've got these qualitative factors. And really those qualitative factors are essentially a proxy, if you will, for this probability weighted multiple. So if you think about probability weighted multiple, I mean, the, the easy thing is, you know, it's dollars in versus dollars out. So our dollars in is easy to measure. That's, you know, whatever size check we write. The dollars out really depends on the exit value of the company and our ownership at the time of exit. So that's the tricky part, by the way, because we know the ownership when we invest. So let's say we buy 10% of a company at the seed stage. That's a pretty typical percent ownership for us. But between the seed stage and when they go public or when they get acquired, there's going to be additional funding rounds. They're going to hire people. By the way, going public is a dilutive event. And so we need to assess how much dilution we think we're going to happen and is going to happen. By the way, we find entrepreneurs are, shall we say, don't have a lot of experience with this and are typically uh, very overly optimistic about the amount of dilution that's really going to happen to them. So we use our own benchmark data on things like dilution. And we work back from you know, each of these variables, if you will. So exit multiple is really a function of revenue and sales multiples. Uh, revenue is a function of market size and market share and so forth and so on to ultimately boil it all down into this probability weighted multiple. I'm curious, how uh, accurate are your estimations and are they getting even more accurate about the dilution? Because there are so many variables coming in later that it's hard to consider at the beginning. Yeah, so, so we've seen, not only do, have we built a decision-making framework, but we've built a learning framework. So when we make predictions about what's going to happen in the future, we make them in such a way where we literally put probabilities on events and we put numbers on them. And the nice thing about putting numbers on them as you can check, well, what actually happened and how did that compare to what I predicted? And I'll give you another metric. So one of the things we look at is we look at essentially the success of a company in life stages. There's early stage, there's something called cross the chasm, and there's mass market. And this is, uh, comes from a book by Jeffrey Moore called Crossing the Chasm. And we think he does one of the, a really great job explaining how a startup company has to fundamentally go through these changes um, in order to become a big player. And each of these changes has its own unique set of risks. So at the early stage, by the way, early stage is like, you know, from our point of view, you're selling to an early adopter customer. We're typically investing in technology companies. And so you can talk cool technology with your customers. This is a very comfortable kind of environment for most startups to be in. And so at that level, we ask ourselves, well, what's the market product team and financial risks associated with that stage? And we literally put a probability on each of these things. But now the great thing about that is we're going to know in 12 to 18 months whether or not this company crosses that stage. And if they don't, why they didn't. So we've got, I mean, that's you know, 12 to 18 months for a feedback loop is still kind of long in business in general, but in the startup world, that's relatively quick. And so, so we're constantly, and we've been doing this for now over 10 years, looking at what we predict, 
what actually happened, and then updating our probabilities based on that. So like dilution, back to your question, early on we would ask um, entrepreneurs about capital efficiency and how they're thinking about raising money and so forth, and we come up with dilution numbers. And what we found, and by the way, so it took us five or six years, is that they were like way off. Everybody was way off. And so, so about like five, six years into this process, we're like, we're going to have to figure this out on our own. We did our own study, our own analysis, and now, now our benchmark kind of dilution numbers are much closer to what we find out is really happening. Beautiful. You have around 66 millions that you are investing in. In how many companies do you, do you in, invest this year? Yeah, so, so fund two was 66 million. And that portfolio construction, the goal was 70 companies. And we've actually just wrapped up that fund. So that's now 73 companies. That's all fully invested. We're just turned on fund three. So it's a fund three is so far a 69 million. We're still raising some capital for that. And uh, we, again, it's a 70 investments in that portfolio. And by the way, just as a context, most seed stage VCs like us, have somewhere between 10 to 30 companies in their portfolio. That would be kind of like the typical confidence range for a number of portfolio companies. So we're you know, more than double the high end of the range in terms of number of companies. Now, this is again a philosophy question. So you have around 1 million per company for this initial early stage investment. What do you think and how do you plan a, and if do you plan follow-up investments? Yeah, so, so we're... We're very unusual this way too. So the, the typical recommendation, this is like, you know, if you're talking to people who invest in venture capitalists or people who have been in venture capitalists for a while, is that it's really important every time you invest a dollar to reserve, you know, somewhere between you know, two, one, two or three dollars in what they call a reserve fund for follow-on investments. You know, so we invest in a company and then when it gets to that next round of funding, the story is, well, in your good companies, you don't want to get diluted out by follow-on investors. So it's really important for you to have additional money to invest in those good companies of yours as you go along so you don't get diluted. So we think this is actually, um, it makes sense. You know, it sounds good. You don't want to get diluted out of your best companies. But if you actually look at the risk and return of each of these investments, we would say each later stage investment you make, by definition, has a late stage risk return. And if you look at early stage risk return, we're an early stage investor. So we want early stage risk return. And just to give you a sense of how different this is, over the last 40 years of venture, Early stage, so basically seed series A, 20% IRR, compounded annually over the last 40 years. One of the best performing asset classes anywhere. Late stage is more like 11 or 12%. Still good, but you know, nowhere close to that 20%. So we want every time we write a check, we want to put it in that sort of that 20% opportunity set. Now, our, I would say our strategy is very much, um, it's, a, it's a function of where we are. So we're right in the middle of Silicon Valley. So if we have a really good performing company, there's all kinds of companies that want to put money in after us. And we invest in many of the great, many of the great Silicon Valley venture funds uh, invest in our companies. So if we were someplace where we didn't have this you know, great set of venture folks that we knew, we might have a different reserve strategy. Which is also one thing that you really do different than others. And, um, and you have also a hypothesis why VCs still keep doing that follow-up and even rationalize afterwards why they do it. Why do you think? Yeah, well, so, so there's some good reasons and there's some bad reasons. So the good reason, I put this in quotes, let's say you're a billion dollar fund. And oh, by the way, there's lots of billion dollar funds out there in Silicon Valley. 
there's no way for you to put all your capital in those early stages. So like if I can put $300 million in the early stages and that's it, I have to have some rationale for how I'm going to use the other 700 million. So it's a good story to your investors, the endowments, the pension funds, the sovereign wealth funds and so forth, why you need this big pool. So, and, and I usually think, you know, that's half the reason why this came about, which is it's a good fundraising story on why, you know, I should have a billion dollar fund as opposed to only a $300 million fund. There's another story, which is, I think venture capitalists like to have, it's sort of like, you like to be on the, on the board of a Google or a Facebook or an Uber. And the way you stay on the board as a venture capitalist is you keep doing those follow on rounds. And so I think it's a, it's a story VCs like to tell themselves. It's like, you know, I'm on this great company. I want to stay on this great company's board. Oh, by the way, I'm really important to this company's success. And that shows up because, you know, I have to write these, I have to keep writing these checks. Now, we did some analysis and we said, well, what if you compared, call it the ULU strategy of investing everything up front. So on that very first check, let's say we're the $69 million fund, we write a million dollar check for 69 companies versus we do the standard thing where, you know, we write more like, oh, a $300,000 check. So we have rooms for follow-ons. When we run the numbers, we find that the all upfront strategy, this is again, using ULU's numbers in terms of like follow-on rates and valuations and that sort of thing. It doubles the multiple on the fund. So if you have a three X multiple doing it the standard way, you'd have a six X multiple doing it with this upfront way. And it's interesting. So this is, I mean, this is a shockingly large difference. And, and so, uh, and, and by the way, most folks in the venture community don't really believe this. And so here's like a, a test. And we had this one of our LPs who say, well, what if you looked at the returns of your initial checks versus the returns of your follow-on checks? Right? If these follow-on checks are so important, what's been the return of that pool of capital? And we had one of our investors ask over 100 early-stage VCs this very question. So they invested in a lot of early-stage VCs. And they said, over those 100 co companies, not one venture firm knew the answer to that, first of all. Because right? nobody sort of separates it out this way. You just have this pool and what's the, the return on your, plural, your whole fund. But now, because they were a potential investor, many of these VCs quickly ran these numbers. And let's just say in every single case, the follow-on checks decreased the return of the overall fund compared to the return on the initial checks.